posting some, some surfing pictures. Each week we're picking a, a sport that's extreme because for all of us as devoted followers of Christ, he will ask us to step into moments where we say to ourselves, I'm not sure I can do that. If we are truly, fully devoted as a follower of Christ, we will find ourselves often and frequently in scenarios and in places and in settings and in moments where we feel inadequate. It's part of this idea of a radical faith in Jesus Christ. If I were going skydiving, I've never done it before. I'd love to try it at some point in my life. But I'm telling you, at the point that I am looking out the window of that airplane, I would be thinking to myself, I'm not sure that I can do it. God wants you to feel that way in your life with things that he asks you to do for his name's sake. It's part of this series that we're in called Radical. And so each week we're going to pick a word that spells radical for us as devoted followers of Christ at the City Life Church. The first week we did VOW, the radical vow of devotion that Jesus asks us to step into. Last week we did a radical unity. If you weren't here, you need to get that podcast. Pastor Mike Cavanaugh from Elam Fellowship up in Lima, New York. It was an amazing teaching, the difference between unity and uniformity, U-N-I-T-Y. It's one of the ways that we spell radical here at the City Life Church. And so tonight, we're going to launch out with another one. And to get you thinking along the right direction, come on, I want you to close your eyes with me. Come on, trust me, nobody's going to steal anything next to you. You can put your hand on your iPhone if you're nervous. And I want you to picture your favorite view. I want you to picture it. Maybe for you, it's a sunset at the beach. For somebody else, it might be on the a mountain vista. You got it? Can you see it? All right, open your eyes. Somebody tell me what you see. What's your favorite view? Yes. Donna. When you're at Shenandoah Crossings. Yeah, that's nice. We just did our men's getaway there. Beautiful views there. Somebody else. Your favorite view you saw, Scotty. Open hole on a golf course. But that's going to change for you the day that you get married, right? Because you're going to say, Sabra, when the door opened and you saw your bride coming to the aisle. So next year, that's going to be your answer. That's going to be your answer. As guys, we help each other out at the City Life Church for the right. Danielle. Smoky Mountains, Becca. Sunset Beach, North Carolina. Dustin. Highway 1 and Cal Pacific Coast Highway. Come on, Alan. Hey, come on, 28 Harpersville Road. Nice. Flattery will get you, it won't get you everywhere, but it will get you at least a little places, right? Stan. Yeah. That's great. Stan was saying that the James River Bridge, when he was in the service, that when he would come home, he would see that, and he would know that he was close to his home. That's good. Come on, somebody else, a favorite view, Amanda. New England in the fall. Yeah, that's nice. Denise? The bridges in, the, in a park in Smithfield that she likes to walk. Yeah, somebody else. Come on, a favorite view. Yes, ma'am. The Outer Banks. Yes, that's one of my all-time favorites. That's one of my favorites. Sit at night, sitting on a deck, looking out at the ocean. Matt? Orion's Nebula. Stephanie? The sun peeks through the clouds. It's good, isn't it? Favorite views. This is one of Jesus' favorite views. 
It's in James chapter 1. Listen to this, beginning in verse 22. It says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and right away forgets what kind of man he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who acts, this person will be blessed in what he does. One of Jesus' favorite views is watching you look at yourself in the Word of God. One of Jesus' favorite views is seeing the people who have made a vow of devotion to him step up into the mirror of God's word and say, what do I see? And then when we walk away from that encounter with God's word that we do not forget what we saw, and it produces in us a desire to change, to become more like what else we always see in that mirror, not just our own failings and our own inadequacies, but we see Christ in that mirror staring back at us, calling us to be more like himself. We're spelling radical tonight, V-I-E-W. There is a radical view that Jesus wants you to take for the rest of of your life. It takes courage because it requires change. It takes courage because it requires an honesty in us that sometimes that we're not willing to give. It requires courage because we begin to realize as beautiful as the grace of God is to say to us, I love you just the way that you are. It also says to us, I love you so much, I'm not going to let you stay there. And he calls us forward into a life of transformation. David Platt's book, Radical Together. Let's read it out of here. Beginning in verse, not verse. Come on, everything's a verse for me. I'm a preacher. Beginning in chapter 1. This is before Mark came to the church at Brook Hills, the church I serve. He had spent practically his entire adult life involved in church programs and serving in church commu- on church committees. You name it and I did it, Mark said. I was on finance teams and personnel teams. I worked on capital building campaigns and set in long-term planning sessions. And every week my schedule was filled with church activity. And after becoming a part of our faith family, Mark started hearing people talk about making disciples. That's when he realized that despite all the good things that he had done in church, he could not name one person outside of his family whom he had led to Christ and who was now walking with Christ and leading others to Christ. And Mark said to me, David, I spent my life doing all the stuff in the church that I thought I was supposed to do, but I'm realizing that I have missed the most important thing, making disciples. At his workplace and in our community, Mark is now intentionally leading people to Christ and teaching them to follow him. The story of Mark's life as a Christian should frighten us. The last thing that you and I want to do is waste our lives on religious activity that is devoid of spiritual productivity. Come on, let's read that again. The last thing that you and I want to do is to waste our lives on religious activity that is devoid of spiritual productivity. Being active in the church, but not advancing the kingdom of God. Oh, come on. It sounds a lot like a verse, doesn't it? We don't want to come to the end of our days on earth only to realize that we have had little impact 
on more people going to heaven. Yet if we are not careful, we will spend our lives doing good things in the church while we ultimately miss out on the great purpose for which we were created. We're reading this book, Radical, together. If you've not connected into a life group, it's not too late. We're just into the first chapter. Come on, there's like seven more weeks to go. You want to read this book with us because it's part of how we're going to take a radical view into our lives. And the conclusion that this gentleman, Mark, reached in the story, it might not be the same conclusion that you reach. It might be something different that you see that you need to change. For him was that he needed to step up his game in sharing his faith. He looked into God's Word and saw something that wasn't there. Part of the seeing what's not there isn't just stopping doing what we shouldn't do. It's also starting doing some things that we need to get going with. There's sins of omission and sins of commission, things that we do that we shouldn't and things that we don't that we should. And so part of your journey, it's going to look different from Mark's. It's going to look different from the person next to you. But there is a journey of change that only begins if you are willing to take a radical view, a look into God's word and say, Jesus, how would you have me change? And we're not just doing it as individuals. We're doing it as a church. We're asking ourselves as a leadership team, as a congregation, Jesus, is there anything that you would have us do differently? And we already know one of the things that he's speaking to us is that we're going to touch poverty in ways that we've never touched poverty before in 2012. We were Facebooking about it this week, if you're on there. We believe for both of our campuses that God is going to direct us to a community that's at risk that we can adopt and that we can get busy in helping to change some lives in that neighborhood. Those neighborhoods are filled with children and nobody is breathing hope into their life and we're going to help to see that change. So we called the Redevelopment and Housing Authority for both Newport News and Williamsburg this week and said, hey, we're a church in the area. Show us an at-risk neighborhood. We want to get involved there with volunteerism. The Williamsburg called us back already called us back the very next day and said, we've got a neighborhood for you. I drove by it already this week and drove through there. And she said, if you get involved there, we'll give you access to our 15-passenger van. You can use that. I mean, she, I mean, they're just, they want people to get involved. Come on, we're going to show up. We're going to show up. That's part of our story. You know, Vanessa and I lived in the inner city of Richmond for 10 years, for a decade. We lived right next door to a housing project, and we've always known that that's not a part of our life that we were just going to look back on and say, I wonder why that was, that it was part of preparing us for something in our future. And we feel like in 2012, we're going to take some steps in that direction. All right, i got to tell you this funny story. So, you know, we, we had a 15-passenger van, and, uh, and we lived in the inner city, and so Vanessa's on this business trip and uh, she was, worked for Capital One. She was an information technology recruiter, and they traveled all around the, the United States. And so they were at the airport, and they realized they had a group that was, that was too big for the car that they had rented, and so that we need to rent a 15-passenger van. They're like, but no, nobody, you know, they were all driving BMWs, right? They didn't, what am I going to do with a 15-passenger van? Vanessa was like, I can drive a 15-passenger van, right? We live in the inner city. We drive kids back and forth to church all the time. Fil homeless people. You know, she, did you see the movie The Italian Job where it was at Charlize Theron? And she's driving the, the, uh, the Mini Cooper and she's like, she does a 180 and slides parallel parks into this little, she can do that with a 15 passenger van. I'm telling you. So they're driving around Dallas, right? And she's just parallel parking and moving in our traffic. And people are like, wow, you can drive a van, right? 
So one day, I'm going to probably get in trouble with this because I didn't get permission for this before we started, so it came to me in the worship set. So Vanessa's backing up the 15-passenger van outside of our house, and, and, and part of driving a 15-passenger van, it has a really big blind spot in the back of it, right? So she backs it right up into our, our, our brand-new Dodge Stratus. And so there's some laws of physics at work, so you can imagine which vehicle won that fight, and so the front of the car looked like an accordion, right? So she comes running into the house, and she's upset, and so, you know, I go, hey, come on, it's just a car, right? Come on, take notes, guys, young husbands, come on, it's just a car, you're okay, right? But what we had been doing is we had been praying because there were some students that we had been working with that we wanted to send on our church's ski trip, and we didn't have the money to send them. So we started praying. You know, God, we know that you want to touch these kids' lives. You want them to, they're never going to have this experience, an opportunity for this experience again. And we, we didn't have the money to do it. And so we had been praying for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And so the insurance company shows up and gives us this check to fix our car, you know. It was a big check. It's a lot of damage. So we're like, wow, this is a lot of money. I wonder if there's a way that we could fix this car and send these kids on this retreat. So I went to this body shop in downtown Richmond, and I uh, said, here's the deal. Told him our whole story, how we had been praying and, and, and what we wanted to do. And he said, come on, we're going we're gonna to figure this thing out. They figured out a way to fix that car. Sure, the paint was peeling off in six months, but they figured out a way to fix that car with aftermarket parts. You know, it, it's just a car. But sometimes our moments of tragedy can be our greatest opportunities for God to do something radical in our circumstances. And these kids, I'm telling you, for the rest of their life, they're going to remember that ski trip that they went on with Mechanicsville Christian Center. That there's a, a worship service. I'm t they had an encounter with a living God all because a car got crunched up with a 15-passenger van. But the way that we begin to change the way that we think is because we're willing to look in this mirror. And it might be that in some of our journeys, and all of us have been there, when we see that check, a value system begins to kick in that causes us to want to spend that money in a different way. But when we begin to live our lives in such a way where we, be, we, we take a radical look into the Word of God, it changes what we value. It changes what's important to us. It changes what matters. And God wants to do that with you. And he's going to do that with this church. Part of this journey as we move forward next year, we might begin to value some different things because we know that God wants to use us to touch poverty in our city. Come on, and we're going to do it together. We're going to do it together. All right, back to our sermon. It's our commercial break. 2 Corinthians 3.18. See, all of us who have had that veil removed can see, which means to view, and reflect, which means to change, the glory of the Lord and the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. A radical view always leads to radical change. This idea of looking into the mirror of God's Word, He does not ask us to do that to demean us. He does not ask us to do that because He's trying to shame us. He doesn't ask us to do that because He's this sadistic, sovereign creator that takes some pleasure in exposing and revealing us to our inadequacies. He invites us to look because He's inviting us to change. He shows us those areas of our lives because in the same breath, he says to you and I, you can look more like me. A radical view 
always leads to a radical change. Luke 5 one says, One day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. Are you pressing in to God's word with your life? It's important because if we're not careful, it just becomes something that we check off of our list because we feel guilty if we don't. It is the mirror of our spiritual life. It's the only way that we can see what our God life looks like. I can step up in front of this mirror, right? At least a little bit because I'm six foot three and I'm bitter about that because all these mirrors are always too short for me. But you can step up in front of this mirror and you can begin to see what you look like. Do I have something in my teeth? Do I, I was in court the other day for a speeding ticket, right? Which is not good, so don't do that, right? Do not follow me as I follow Christ when I'm driving down the road. And so I, 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 I look over and I notice the, uh, one of the attorneys that are there, he has two different color shoes on. It's hilarious, hilarious. They're exactly the same, right? He said these wing, they're wingtips. And uh, you guys don't know what wingtips are, but they're really old shoes. They're grandpa shoes, right? And you know he's probably had those things for 20 years, right? He's got a brown pair and he's got a black pair. He had a brown one on and a black one on. I didn't have the heart to tell him, bro, I think you got different color shoes on, right? Because he didn't look into the mirror before he left for the office that morning. There, there's this mirror that you can see what you look like on the outside. This is the only mirror that you can look into to see what you look like on the inside. It's the only one in the world. It's the only one in the world and it doesn't give you a distorted view. It's not like the mirrors at the funny house at the state fair, right? What you see in this book is who you are. And God wants you to know what you look like because he wants you to begin a journey of change. Are you pressing in? Are you pressing in? So I want to look at three parts of this idea of a radical view. Because we don't want you to just get excited at the thought of it. We want you to know how to do it. And so the first part of a radical view that leads to radical change is that you've got to take a look. This idea of looking. Not waiting until we have mastered the entire Bible before we start looking. It might be that you've tried to read the Bible before and you got frustrated because you didn't understand anything that you were reading. And so part of that, just get a different translation. The New Living Translation is a fantastic translation of the Bible that's written in a modern language, but it's still a great translation. Getting a study Bible that has some study notes, like the Apologetic Study Bible or the Open Study Bible. There's all kinds of study Bibles that you can get that have some notes in it that helps to explain what you're and reading, if you've walked with addiction in your life, there's a, a great Bible called the, the Recovery. It's a recovery Bible. It has the 12 steps all throughout Scripture and little articles about how the Bible applies to those 12 steps that you're working. There's all kinds of Bibles that are out there. Don't, don't get a King James Bible. Nobody talks like that anymore, right? You're just going to be confused. And don't start reading in the book of Leviticus, right? That's, you're setting yourself up for failure, Start reading in the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. People say, well, it's a book. I want to start at the beginning and read to the end. No, it's not a book. It's 66 books that are put together as one. So start in the Gospels. Start reading about the life of Jesus. Then go into the book of Acts. Then some of the smaller epistles like James or some that Paul wrote, like Philippians and Ephesians. And as you begin to take small steps, come on, you're going to begin to realize, hey, I understand a lot more of what's in this book than I thought that I did. And then you keep reading because the next reason that you're going to want to stop is because you understand a lot more in that book than you hope that you would because you begin to see what it says about you. 
But come on, that's the beginning of a life of change. Don't say, I'm not going to look because I'm not going to understand it. Come on, you start. God wrote it. And by his spirit, he's going to help you figure it out. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Listen to this. It says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves or do, not, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. Now, these are three very important words when we talk about this idea of a radical view. There's a test involved which means that there are standards that you are going to find in the Bible that are not relative. They're absolutes. It's not a test if the answers aren't measured against something that determines whether or not it's right or wrong. If someone says, I'm going to give you a test and there's no right or wrong answers, that's not a test, right? Those are just ideas. That's A test is you, you put down what you think the answers are and you compare them to, come on, if you were in school, you wanted desperately to get a hold of the teacher's book because it had all the answers in there. It's a test. There's right and wrong. Some things might be right for you and wrong for me and vice versa. That's a different sermon. But there are things in this book that we're going to read that says this is right for everybody and this is wrong for everybody. And that no matter how much longer this world continues, if Jesus doesn't come back soon, come on, they're always going to be wrong. And part of this idea of stepping in and taking a radical view is that we've got to be prepared that there are some right answers and there are some wrong answers. And when our life is the wrong answer, we've got to be willing to acknowledge it. There is a test that we've got to apply our lives to, absolute truths. Come on, racism is wrong, it's always been wrong, and it's always going to be wrong. And you can't just say, well, that's the way that I was raised. Come on, then we just need to say it. Then you were raised wrong, and God can change that. Are you with me? Come on, there's things that are always going to be wrong. Lying isn't just saying something that's absolutely untrue. It's leaving out information that you know good and well is going to lead someone to a different conclusion. You can't say, well, that's not my fault. Come on, that's wrong. It's always been wrong. It's always going to be wrong. Children are alive at the moment of conception. Before they're born, they're living and sacred to God. And anything counter to that, it's wrong. It's always been wrong. It's always going to be wrong. There are absolutes that we find in this book. There is a test. There's an answer sheet that God has. And we've got to be okay and trust that the answers that he has, they're the right answers, even if they're not the ones that were given. And then it says you've got to be willing to examine yourself. Because the world is full of people that are okay with this idea of Jesus being the final answer for absolute truth. The question is, are they willing to examine themselves in light of it? So once you begin to accept the reality that God has some absolute truths that he wants to apply to your life, you've got to step into the place of examination. You've got to be willing to say, okay, how do I measure up? You've got to be willing to say, well, what do I think about this? Well, how do I believe? How do I respond in these situations? When Jesus says you've got to love your enemy, right? That's an absolute truth. But at some point, we've got to examine ourselves and say, so how do I act when I'm around people that I know don't like me? There has to be a moment of examination. And this last part, this idea of recognition, this is important. This idea of recognition means that we've got to be willing to acknowledge where we're wrong and where he's right and begin an honest dialogue with God that says, will you help me change? 
There has to be a willingness to change. There has to be a willingness to do it different. There has to be a willingness to step into a place of compliance. This idea of recognition is where we begin to confess and say, God, I don't want to be like this anymore. Come on, that's the moment that he's waiting for. It's the beginning of your journey of transformation. Someone at home, someone at work, someone at church, what do you see? This is an important part of how you take a radical look into your life. A radical view begins with a radical look. You've got to find some people that you trust. You've got to find some people that you trust and ask them to step up into the mirror with you and say, what do you see in me in light of my faith in Christ? It takes courage, right? We do it all the time on the outside. Honey, do these shoes match these pants, right? Can I wear this shirt with whatever? Does this earring look better than this one? We do it all the time in the natural. But in our spiritual life, it's a little bit more personal. In our spiritual life, it's a little bit more sensitive. But all of us have blind spots, and we're walking around, come on, with spiritual spinach in our teeth because we're not willing to ask someone else what we look like. People in church, it's one of the reasons why life groups are so important is because you begin to build relationships with people that you trust enough to ask them questions about yourself. Hey, is there anything in my life that you've ever thought, you know what, if I ever had a chance to share this with him, I would, what would that be? Come on, find some people and begin to say to them, have you seen anything in my life that's a contradiction to my faith in Christ? It's part of how we change. What do you see? 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16 says this, So think clearly and exercise self-control. Look forward to the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am am holy. A radical view leads to radical change. We're not going to get there tomorrow, but come on, we should be closer next year than we are now. And God knows that the fulfillment of that in totality is an absolute impossibility, but he wants us to know just because we can't be exactly like Jesus doesn't mean that we can't be more like him than we are today. He wants us to take a look because he wants us to begin to change. All right, number two. We've got to look and we also have to embrace this idea of a radical view about embracing, not waiting until we are perfect before we start embracing our identity in Christ. Because as you begin to look into God's word and you begin to look into that mirror, it can be overwhelming because you realize maybe there's very little about my life that's like Jesus. And if we're not careful, discouragement sets in and we say, well, I'm just, you know, I'm always going to be this way. There has to be something inside of you, come on, that says, Because I made a vow of devotion to Jesus Christ, I am God's child. There is a God life inside of me that is living, that is eternal. And even though I've made a lot of mistakes, those mistakes do not define who I am. 
There has to be something inside of us that says, I have done some bad things, but those bad things don't define who I am. I am a child of the living God, a devoted follower of Christ. And if there is any transformation that's going to come in our lives, it's only going to come if we step forward into a place of effort and trying with God's help from a place of saying, I know who I am. If your identity with Christ isn't settled, you're going to fumble through this journey of transformation for the rest of your life. For a lot of us, we don't have a sin problem as much as we have an identity problem. And once we get that resolved, there's a courage that wells up inside of our heart that says, I can do better than this. Listen to this. This is in Luke chapter 4, verse 28. It says, When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. It's one of the methods of stoning is they would push you over a hill that would render you uh, incapable of fleeing, and then they would hurl rocks down over the hill onto you until you died. It says they intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and he went on his way because there was supernatural protection. We know that he was destined to die for our sins, but not that way at those people's hands and certainly at not this point in his life. He had only been ministering on the earth for one year, for one year when this happened. And so after his first year of ministry, he goes back to his hometown, the town of Nazareth. So he's about ready to step out of his year of inauguration. He's about ready to step into his year of popularity. If you're tracking through in the Gospels, it takes us through about Matthew 4, Mark 1, Luke 4, and John 4. That's the first year of Jesus' life in ministry. His story of his baptism, his encounter with the devil in the wilderness, turning water to wine, all of these things on this list, Jesus has done in his first year of ministry when he steps into the town of Nazareth. And they reject him because they say, We know who you are, Jesus. You grew up here. We've known you for the first 30 years of your life. So just because you've been doing all this stuff for the last 12 months doesn't mean anything to us. This is important that we understand. Because as you begin to take some steps to be public with your faith in Christ, your buddy's going to say, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, we were just throwing up together in the bathroom of the bar just a month ago, right? So this whole, I'm a follower of Jesus now, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what you're talking about. It is hard to break free from the expectations of others. But we cannot let other people label us who we are. Part of this journey of looking into the mirror of God's word isn't just to see where we fall short. It's to reclaim our identity as a child of God, a devoted follower of Christ. And even though the world wants to put a label on us because of the story that we've been living, we embrace a new identity because of the story that we're about ready to live. And it's not easy to break free from those expectations. Jesus, who lived a perfect life, had to struggle to not let other people put a label on him that did not belong. We are label-putting people. It's part of the brokenness of our humanity. And there is no label that belongs on you that should ever be over top your ultimate label, which is a child of the Most High. Come on. So then we turn to Mark chapter 6. It says, he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. He's in Nazareth. And many who heard him were astonished. Now, this is important because the chronology of the Bible helps us understand deeper meaning that we find in Scripture. And so if we're not careful, you read in Luke in 4, and then you turn to Mark 6, and you think that while this is just Mark, we're counting the same story as Luke did, but it's not. This is a whole year later. 
So Jesus leaves Nazareth, Nazareth because they're not willing to accept his identity. They try to put a label on him. So he goes back out into Israel. He ministers for another whole year, another whole 12 months. And during this 12 months, he does some incredible things. He begins to raise people from the dead. He exercises power over the demonic. He actually demonstrates he has authority over nature itself, sickness. Some of his greatest sermons have been taught. He's launched into his parable ministry. He's ordained the 12 disciples. And above all else, he's begun to say to the world, I am God, his claims of divinity. So he goes back to Nazareth. You know what he's thinking, right? Surely after 12 more months, they're going to change their mind. But Mark 6 tells us nothing has changed in them. It is hard for people to forget the story of who you used to be. And if it was hard for them to do it with Jesus, who never made him any mistakes, how hard is it going to be for you and I? If it was hard for him, who after he stepped into a place of his ministry where he began to reach out to the world, where you and I, even though maybe we've broken free from some of what we used to be, we're still making mistakes, right? All of us are still going to make some mistakes. All of us are still going to continue to fall short. So if that's our lot in life, then how much more difficult is it going to be for us? We, we have to talk about it because it's important that you're ready for it that you have got to find a sense of resolve in your life that you will not let other people define you, that you will not let other people say to you who you are. For some of you, that's a big deal because you might have the voice of your father that's echoing in your ear for the horrible things that he said to you all of growing up. It might be that you have the voice of your mother in your ear, a grandmother, a teacher, a coach, someone that you trusted yourself to, a spiritual leader. Maybe it was a pastor who betrayed your trust in some way. That it could be for you this idea of letting other people define who you are. You're stuck in that place, and we're saying, come on, you can get unstuck from that place. As you begin to look into God's Word, you begin to find a new identity that's waiting there for you that is not determined by who you used to be, but it's dictated by what's to come in the life that you're going to live, even in spite of the fact that we're still going to make mistakes. Jesus says, I've got an identity that's waiting for you that's going to redefine your life. And at some point, whether the world accepts it or not, it does not matter. What matters is whether or not we embrace our identity. Because once we do that, come on, there's no stopping the journey of transformation that God wants to work in your life. All right, number three. Our last one, a radical view of this idea of touching. So there's a looking that we've got to do. There's an embracing that has to happen. And there's a touching that we've got to be willing to step into. Not waiting until we have dealt with all of our insecurities before we start touching a desperate world. This is a little bit different from the other one that we just talked about. Because one of the challenges that we've got to face, we've got to deal with the guilt of our mistakes. But once we begin to break free from that and we begin to embrace our identity as a follower of Christ, what we begin to realize is that God wants to use us to do stuff. It's interesting, that verse that launched this whole sermon in James chapter 1, the way that it wraps up is it says, you will be blessed in all that you do. But you can't walk in those blessings if you never do anything. There's a doing that needs to come out of our lives is radically devoted followers of Christ. This idea of stepping into moments where you're willing to say, I'm not sure that I have what it takes. 
You're at the grocery store and you feel God's prompting to turn around and strike up a conversation with someone behind you and you're scared to death that God's going to ask you, you know, to talk about him, right? Come on, we've all been there. And you're saying to yourself, I don't really talk to people, I'm shy, and this is this moment. We can spend the rest of our lives talking about why we can't, but God is always saying the same thing to you and I in every one of those moments. I'm going to help you do it. If it were up to you, I wouldn't have asked you to begin with. I already know that you can't. That's part of the journey. But I want you to discover what it's like to rely on me, and then together we can touch a hurting world. The thought of going into at-risk communities, for some of you, you might be scared to death about that. Good. Come on, then we're on the right track. We want you to feel like I'm not sure I have what it takes, but God is going to meet you in that place. If we try to get all of our insecurities worked out before we try to do anything with God to change our world, we'll never do anything because we're never going to be ready. I've got this phrase that I've been praying through for the last several weeks is that I want, I want to live my life in between the place of what I can and who He is. I want to live in the place in between what I can and who He is. I want to live in the gap. I want to be in a place where I'm walking out my life in such a way that I feel inadequate because I'm desperate for God to intervene. This is a powerful story for us. It's in Luke chapter 7. It says, soon afterwards, he was on his way to a town called Nain. His disciples and a large crowd were traveling with him. And just as he neared the gate of the town, a dead man was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. Come on, talk about a desperate situation. And a large crowd from the city was also with her. It's a powerful picture for us that we're given. It's a true story. But it's also an incredible metaphor for the life that we're called to live. You and I might not ever, might not ever touch a dead body in a coffin and see it raised to life. But death and dying takes on many forms. You have people around you every day that are dying because their marriage is failing. You have people around you every day, they're dying because of some secret that they're hiding that they've suffered from, maybe some abuse or some trauma. You're surrounded by people every day who are dead and dying in a spiritual sense. Maybe it seems like they've got it all together, right? Every material possession and still there's just money falling out of their pockets while they're getting out of their car, walking to their house. But deep inside, if they don't know Christ, they're languishing. They're dead and dying. Death takes on many forms in this world. And the reason why Jesus isn't still coming back to do what he did the three years that he ministered when he was on this earth is because he's wanting you to do it. He's wanting you and I to be Christ, to be him in the world today. It's why in some of those verses where we began, when you take this test, it's this idea that Jesus is inside of me. And you can still touch death and see it raised to life. For all of us, he's called us to be resurrectioners. He's called us to bring life into death and dark places. And one of the powerful things about this picture is that we see Jesus in an entourage as he goes. And that's the way it is for you and I. You and I will never fulfill our destiny and touch the world that we're supposed to if we're not a part of a church family. You might be able to do some touching, but there is a touching that rises to this kind of magnitude of a resurrectioner that only comes when you're a part of a crowd. 
when you're only a part of an entourage of other people who are devoted followers of Christ. The value of what happens in here is measured by what happens out there, but what needs to happen out there will never occur unless we're first in here. God is going to measure our lives at some point, and He's going to want to know what did we do when we walked outside of these doors. And whatever it is that He's called you to do, whoever's lives that He's called you to touch, the only way you're going to be able to have the biggest impact if you're touching with the other people that are in this room next to you. I'm going to invite Kevin to come back up, and we're going to close out the service with a song together. We're spelling radical tonight, V-I-E-W. There is a view that God wants you to take. He wants you and I to look intently. He wants you and I to look honestly. He wants you and I to look courageously into His Word so that we can begin to ask ourselves some hard questions. I'm a follower of Christ, but do I have a life-defining faith? I have a faith in Him, but is that faith in Him reflected in the life that I live, in the choices that I make? the values that I have, the lifestyle that I pursue. And as you begin to look at those things that you're not going to grow discouraged, that you're not going to say what I do defines who I am. I am a child of the living God, and who he says that I am is the identity that I'm going to take on. And there begins the journey of courage that launches you out into a place of transformation that just never stops. And as you go, he's going to use you to touch a dying world in ways that you would never be able to do on your own. So stand with me as we sing this song together. I'm going to ask you to do something tonight. Maybe you'll take your Scrabble piece out as just a marker for yourself. You know, symbolic acts are important. I like to kneel as often as I can when I pray. It just It's part of the way I use my body to say to my soul, He's in charge. You with me? Symbolic acts are important. They're important. So as we sing this song, I'm just going to ask some of you, you need to do it. You need to get out of your seat because you, you struggle with being conspicuous. God wants you to be conspicuous in this world. He doesn't want you to be a hider. He wants you to put, posture yourself in a way, not with arrogance, but a humble confidence that says, God, use me. So as we sing this song, I'm going to ask you just that you're going to find a place at this altar. Just You're going to find a place at this altar. Don't worry about whether or not anybody else comes. Come on. It's going to be your way as a symbolic act that you're going to stand here and you're going to say, God, I want to look intently into the mirror of your word in a way that I've never looked before. I want to see what you see. Come on, as we sing, you come and you just stand with your creator. You're everything that I could ever dream for. You satisfy my soul. You are my king. I worship you all my days. You are my perfect. And I'll be the poet that sings 
your glory and I'll be the poet that sings your glory your See? 